0: Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the meeting today in Mexico City between Mexico's President López Obrador AMLO and the U.S. Secretary of State, the Secretary of Homeland Security, and the Attorney General in an attempt to address the fentanyl scourge, immigration and border security, issues the Republicans are campaigning on while AMLO denies fentanyl is made in Mexico and blames the U.S. for the flood of immigrants from Cuba and Venezuela. Joining us is Sam Quinones, a journalist, author, and storyteller whose two acclaimed books on narrative nonfiction about Mexico and Mexican immigration, True Tales from Another Mexico, and Antonia's Gun and Delfino's Dream, made him, according to the San Francisco Chronicle Book Review, the most original writer on Mexico and the border. His books include Dreamland, The True Tale of America's Opiate Epidemic, and most recently, The Least of Us, True Tales of America and Hope in the Time of Fentanyl and Meth. Then, with Biden promising a major speech on Ukraine as Russia strikes a supermarket killing 51 shoppers, we will speak with George Beebe, the Director of Grand Strategy at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, He served in government for nearly 25 years, including as director of Russia analysis at the CIA and as a White House advisor on Russia matters for Vice President Dick Cheney. His latest book is The Russia Trap, How Our Shadow War with Russia Could Spiral into Nuclear Catastrophe. And we will discuss his article at Responsible Statecraft. Will Ukraine's effort go bankrupt gradually, then suddenly? Then finally, we'll assess the blowback Armenia's leader faces after the ethnic cleansing of Nagorno-Karabakh by Azerbaijan and speak with Shushan Karapetian, the director of the University of California's Institute of Armenian Studies, who previously taught Armenian studies at UCLA for 10 years, where she currently also serves as associate director of the National Heritage Language Resource Center her research focuses on the Armenian experience, particularly in competing ideologies at the intersection of language and the construction of transnational identity. And before we begin, I'd like to thank our sustaining listeners whose tax-deductible monthly donations, large and small, at backgroundbriefing.org donate, or at our foundation, publictruthmedia.org, enable us to provide a daily briefing on the major stories in the news, free from commercials, corporate underwriting, paywalls, and constant fundraising. As Trump and his MAGA followers weaponize lies in their war against truth itself, we're in a fight between crazy America and normal America. In order to overcome deliberate distraction and distortion, Background Briefing seeks out facts and information to awaken the silent majority in the hope of restoring a reality-based community before fascism trumps democracy and facts become completely irrelevant. And joining us now is Sam Quinones, who is a journalist, author, and storyteller, whose two acclaimed books of narrative nonfiction about Mexico and Mexican immigration, True Tales from Another Mexico, and Antonio's Gun and Delfino's Dream, made him, according to the San Francisco Chronicle Book Review, the most original writer on Mexico and the border. His books include Dreamland, The True Tale of America's Opiate Epidemic, and most recently, The Least of Us, True Tales of America, and Hope in the Time of Fentanyl and Meth. Welcome to Background Briefing, Sam Kenyonis.
1: Great to be here. Thank you, Leon.
0: Well, thanks for joining us, Sam, and uh, Secretary of State Blinken, along with Head of Homeland Security, Mayorkas, and the Attorney General, Merrick Garland, are all in Mexico City meeting with President uh, López Obrador, largely talking about the two main issues that are going to dog the Biden campaign in next year's elections, which the Republicans are going to be hammering away at, and that is fentanyl and the border. And in both cases, Biden is clearly trying to get ahead of that criticism, and now he's going to actually increase Trump's border wall, which is upsetting a lot of Democrats. So what do you expect to be achieved from these talks in Mexico today?
1: Oh, it's hard to it's hard to say. I keep on being optimistic because, uh, particularly when it comes to the topics I've been covering most recently, which are fentanyl and methamphetamine, the synthetic drugs that are coming across the the border in just staggering uh, quantities. It, it 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 would really take a uh, a collaborative approach uh, between both countries and a really a binational uh, vision of what this problem is um, for for uh, for it to improve. I don't see that as, as impossible. I think it's actually not that difficult to achieve, but uh, the countries just don't seem to move forward on this, uh, at all. So, uh, I think there's a very good idea. I think the more talks we have, the more people are getting to know one another, uh, ways they should already know each other by now, but don't. uh, um, you know, this is good. Um, but, um, You know, history uh, cautions against too much optimism when it comes to this.
0: So how much, though, is López Obrador a problem in as much as he doesn't see things the same way that the U.S. government does? For example, on immigration, he blames the U.S. uh, for sanctions against uh, Venezuela and Cuba because of all the Cubans and Venezuelans that are coming out. But he doesn't blame the governments of Cuba and Venezuela
1: yeah I think well, I mean I just I, I think that's irrational, um, honestly. I mean, I think Venezuela has created this disaster uh, f- for it, for itself and and, and it's a it's a sad thing, and I think that, um, that uh, um, Mexico ought to understand that uh, too. It's, it's not hard to understand what's going on there. It's radically changed immigration from the South. Of course, it used to be, you know, uh, when I first started with covering immigration, this this was mostly about people who would come across trying to hide to be able to get across and find a work somewhere else in the United States. And now it's very much not that. It's just showing up, asking for asylum and being hope that you can be taken into the United States and put somewhere and wait for your asylum Uh, hearing. It's really an ex But both both kinds are kind of the. The the reflection of the dysfunctional economy or government both uh, uh, of the of the governments um, uh, in in question Ecuador Venezuela Honduras to Mexico was that way it's it's I think there's a lot of things that have changed in Mexico that makes it less of the source of immigration today than it than it was say in the '90s when I began writing about it though
0: so the border wall of course is a major reversal it's Biden campaign done not one more inch of the border wall. And obviously there are environmental objections to what they're going to be doing. And the representative from the star County on the Texas border, democratic Texas Congressman Henry Quayle, said the border wall is a 14th century solution to a 21st century problem. What, what do you, do you agree with that? I
1: would say that, um, well, uh, to some degree, sure. Um, I will say that border walls have instilled um, order on the border, I, I'm particularly referring to, uh, to Tijuana, which was in the 90s, early 90s, just crazy people, hundreds and hundreds of people every night running across, people having their backyards trampled, people hiding under garbage cans. And they put the wall in. Clinton did the first one. Then George Bush added a second wall that was far more, I guess you could say, professional, uh, the first wall, Clinton's wall, went 50 yards or so into the Pacific Ocean. You can still see it. It's still there. Um, but what it did was uh, put an end to um, uh, uh, the, the coyote industry out of Tijuana, the, the, the kind of exploitation and the, the, the running across of, of migrants. And I've spoken to numerous uh, coyotes from those years, and they you know, bemoan the fact that the wall happened. And now you just don't see people crossing uh, from that, that area. Um, what it doesn't do, what a wall does not do, and we've seen that in the last 20 years certainly, is do anything about uh, the supply of drugs, particularly uh, if if the supply of drugs is being created in the staggering quantities that we are seeing it come out of Mexico. So in those same years, we've had these walls in in Juarez and, and I mean in, in El Paso and Nogales and uh, Tijuana, Mexicali, places like that. You you still see, you, you, we have seen. Um, the drugs just just flood through and it's so much so that you know we don't we don't have pricing history for fentanyl but we do have pricing history for methamphetamine and what you're finding is that methamphetamine has dropped in price by at least at least 90 percent in the places where where i've done tabulations and sometimes it's even like 95 uh frequently on the streets of la it's simply free um, and that is what drugs do a poor job of, of stopping. Uh, and uh, the, the trafficking world's very good at, at, at that. And they are particularly, I think this is a, 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 a really a case, the synthetic era of drugs we're now in, where all the drugs are not grown, they are made from chemicals, is really uh, shown to be kind of a, a case of uh, supply creating demand. And so you have people creating demand with the stuff that you are, that they're sending um, uh, 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 across, uh, principally again, I say uh, fentanyl and, and methamphetamine, but the the supplies of the thing, and it's just staggering to see two two drugs covering the country now, covering the United States from Maine to L.A. Um, and and seeing these things in such potency too. All of which is simply an idea that that there is relentless supply being produced. And so much of that is, is, is coming across the border through walls because it's really not it's, – it's coming on – some of it's coming on people's person, but I think the majority of it really is coming in vehicles, trucks, cars. There's just such vehicular traffic due to free trade between the two countries, and we do not have the ability to check even a, even a, a, a moderate percentage of the trucks and, and cars coming through
0: So on Tuesday, the Justice Department announced actions against eight China-based companies and 12 of their employees for producing their precursors for fentanyl and methamphetamine production. And that, of course, has annoyed uh, the Chinese government. But apparently, for the longest time, the U.S. has been trying to get China to cooperate, and apparently they they really don't crack down on false shipping labels, et cetera. So there must be some kind of criminal gang. Or, I mean, what do you think is going on in China? I mean, are they paying the West back oh, for I the think, opium I wars?
1: That, yeah, I mean, it's something similar, just reverse, you know. Uh, something, it, it feels that way. I don't have reporting to show that that's the intention necessarily, but it certainly feels that way. Now, they did crack down because they were shamed into it, in 2019 saying that only a few companies can now produce fentanyl itself in China. And that meant that you really, very difficult time uh, getting the the fentanyl. But by that time, the truth is I think that, that the Mexican trafficking world had figured out how to make it. And what they were really interested in was just getting the precursor chemicals. And that is the problem that we're seeing um, now. And there is a scandalous catastrophic quantities uh, uh, coming uh, into Mexico uh, through the shipping ports, through the Mexico City airport, et cetera, and uh, being then transformed into uh, fentanyl. But also it's very important to keep in mind, this is not just about fentanyl. It's about methamphetamine, too. Methamphetamine drives people to, to mental illness, sim- uh, symptoms of schizophrenia on the street. Fentanyl kills them. It's a one-two punch that is in place in many, many, many parts of the country of the United States now. And, and uh, it is a, entirely a function of the amount of chemical ingredients that the Mexican trafficking world can get their hands on, most of it, uh, from China, because Mexico doesn't make a lot of the stuff that they need.
0: But again, López Obrador, the Mexican president, he basically blames the U.S. He said, you know, we don't have a, have a problem here in, in fentanyl
1: uh, addiction. In, in <laughs> that delusional thinking. Right. that's absolutely delusional thinking I don't know if you saw uh, first of all there's methamphetamine all over Mexico now uh, um, it I n- was not there when I first arrived because there was uh, scant quantities of it being produced and, and, um, and, very, and they couldn't produce as much as they wanted this was in the mid to late 90s um, they couldn't produce as much as they wanted because uh, they couldn't get their hands on enough of the ingredients uh, the ingredient then the pr- principal precursor was ephedrine and they couldn't really get their hands on all that they wanted. Uh, and so they made enough to cover parts of the United States, western United States mostly. And, and, and not a, some of it, but not a lot of it, stayed in Mexico. With Sentinel and now with Methamphetamine both, you're seeing that very much change. And uh, there's a terrific story in the um, Los Angeles Times uh, about a month ago in which they, uh, about the city of Mexicali where the forensic, uh, the, the medical examiner there, decided to begin for the first time in Mexico testing the de- bodies of corpses, the, the bloodstream of corpses to find out whether or not there was any drugs in them. Me- Lopez Obrador makes these claims, but Mexico doesn't do toxicology reports which is absolutely routine in, 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 in most uh, uh, autopsies done here in the, in the United States. And it tells you what is exactly in the bloodstream of that dead person, what was in that blood stream when the person was was alive well they don't do that in mexico so how they would ever know that this is a, a whether this is a problem in there among their countrymen i they couldn't possibly say but this one medical examiner uh did autopsies um and toxicology reports on everybody between june i believe it was june 22 to june 23 and he found 23 <laughs> percent twenty three percent I think the figure was of the bodies he tested tested positive for fentanyl. I would say that's a catastrophic problem for Mexico uh, that they wanna not recognize it like, you know that's their thing but let's let's be clear here. The data that you do have well, you don't have much of, but the data you do have show that that actually it's about a quarter of your country in the past are using fentanyl now. I don't know if that's true nationwide it's making colleagues of different cases on the border, et cetera. But it was a remarkable story and a remarkable exercise by this very brave um, medical examiner in, in the town of Mexicali.
0: But Lepos Albedor denies that fentanyl is being made in Mexico, which is just unbelievable. Yeah, total
1: nonsense. Right. No, that's total nonsense. I mean, there's huge amounts of precursor chemicals coming into Mexico. There's a, a, a lot of reporting. There's there's um, uh, labs being taken. I mean, it's it's. You know, at a certain point, you kind of have to say, you know, smile and nod and pat him on the head and move on, because uh, it's getting in the way of, of real discussion of of what is really happening uh, out there and, um, and the problems that are being created by ghastly supplies coming out of Mexico. The other ghastly supplies, let me just say, to be completely balanced and fair on this, are the supplies of assault weapons that are sold so easily here in the United States that apparently any... 18 year old can buy them, uh, you know, AR 15s, AK 47s, et cetera, ammunition, also, et cetera, et cetera, and are being um, produced, you know, and, uh, or sold in, in scandalous quantities, you know, just, uh, and, and, and a lot of those are being um, sent, uh, uh, smuggled down, down to Mexico where they're arming the very people who are making these drugs.
0: So Sam there are two women running to replace Lopez Obrador uh, for president in the next Mexican elections. Do you know anything about them and what their approach will be to I, I cracking know, down on I know, fentanyl? I,
1: yes, I know very little about them and it's not clear to me whether regardless of what they say now whether whether cracking down on fentanyl is, will be in their um uh, in their playbook um uh, because there are a lot of forces behind this. On the other hand, I do believe that that's why the United States needs to have a role in all this, a role of of, ta- of of working together with the Mexican government, of being a collaborative team, not hectoring and stamping our feet necessarily, but being a collaborative team, which is why I think it's not a bad idea that you're seeing this, this visit down to Mexico. Uh, I don't know what they're saying behind closed doors, but I do believe in the therapeutic and powerful effect of these two countries coming together now my feeling i when i was in mexico uh claudia scheinbaum who's from amlo's party um was to me seemed like a a reasonable uh articulate um person on the other hand i thought the same of um uh, andres manuel lopez obrador and since then he has become um i think to watch him speak is to watch a man who is not in possession of his all of his faculties it's a very weird weird uh, thing to watch him speak at press conferences and whatever. You think that he's really kind of delu- out of it, just out of it mentally. Um, and, of course, his his relentless blaming of the media for all his problems very much reminds me of Donald Trump, I have to say. And it's absolutely scandalous that he would do that because blaming the media in Mexico is very much more dangerous. Sure, they get killed. The media say. In the they get exactly killed. Exactly right. There's several yes and that's it's a very dangerous job to have in mexico and when the president himself is kind of almost opening the door to retribution uh against uh, against uh, uh reporters um that has a very um different effect in mexico than it does in the in the united states
0: so just in the last minute then sam you have crossed the country and you're now in in kentucky and you're investigating alternative treatments to fentanyl addiction because fentanyl is such that you have to take a fentanyl pill, what, four or five times a day uh, to keep the high going. So it's, a, it's an insidious form of addiction. Should the United oh. States step up its game in terms of being less punitive about drug addiction and more therapeutic?
1: Um, uh, that is a very long question, and I'm afraid you're going to have to have me back uh, to, to address that. I would say that the problems that fentanyl p- poses um, uh, with regard to addiction and 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 thwarting the desire of people to ever want to get clean because it's so scary to actually go without the drug um, because of the tolerance is is a whole different question. And it's too complicated to address to address here. I will say, though, that in many parts of the country, you are seeing four and five pills is minor. Um, in Tucson, people are routinely, according to interviews I did with with counselors and with with, with uh, addicts, uh, people are using 50 to to 80 pill, pills a day. In Denver, I've had several conversations. It's interesting to follow the track. Um, in Tucson, it's 50 to 80. I was talking with people in Denver; it's more like 40 to 50. I was speaking with people in Billings, Montana, so you go kind of straight north almost, and the country farther from the border where the pills are a little bit less frequent up there. In Billings, and the, the people are using 15 or so uh, uh, pills a day, but that is the nature of fentanyl. That's why it's a great surgical drug, because it takes you in and out, in and out of, of anesthesia very quickly. It's also That is what makes it a, a devastating, from a user's perspective, a devastating uh, a drug on the street, because now you have to use and use and use and use all day long. It's a treadmill that you cannot uh, get off of very easily. It requires a whole bunch of new responses. But again, I don't think we have time. Maybe another sure. time we can, we can chat about what those are.
0: Okay, Sam, and I, and I get it, and we will do a follow-up, and I thank you for joining us.
1: My pleasure, Ian. Thanks for the call.
0: And again, I mean, speak with Sam Keones, who is a journalist, author, and storyteller whose two acclaimed books of narrative nonfiction about Mexico and Mexican immigration, True Tales from Another Mexico, and Antonio's Gun and El Delfino's Dream, made him, according to the San Francisco Chronicle Book Review, the most original writer on Mexico and the border. His books include Dreamland, The True Tale of America's Opiate Epidemic, and most recently, The Least of Us, True Tales of America, and Hope in the Time of Fentanyl and Meth. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back discussing efforts in the United States to cut off aid to Ukraine and Russia's strategy of a long war. You know I've seen a lot of people walking around with tombstones in the right. And joining us now is George Beebe, the Director of Grand Strategy at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. He served in government for nearly 25 years, including as Director of Russia Analysis at the CIA and as a White House Advisor on Russia Matters for Vice President Dick Cheney. His books include The Russia Trap, How Our Shadow War with Russia Could Spiral into Nuclear Catastrophe, and he has an article at Responsible Statecraft, Will Ukraine's Effort Go Bankrupt Gradually Then Suddenly? Welcome to Background Briefing, George BB. Thanks, Ian. Well, George, since the ousting of McCarthy and the cutting of funds for Ukraine, the Kremlin spokesman, Dmitry Peskov, more or less said, that, I don't know say he said they're counting on it, but he, he detected a, a growing fatigue in the West, with uh, both in the US and in NATO, in terms of supporting Ukraine's war effort. And therefore... The assumption would be been that Putin's strategy is to go for the long war. How do you see it?
2: Well, I think it's right. Uh, I think this has been Putin's strategy since very early uh, in after this invasion of Ukraine. Initially, I think he thought this would be a very short war, that Russian forces wouldn't really have to fight much. They would sweep into Kiev. The Ukrainians would surrender, and uh, the Russians had to worry more about, you know, riot control than about actually conquering the Ukrainian military. That didn't work out. Uh, The Russians fell back uh, to uh, the east of Ukraine, recognizing that uh, their initial bid uh, had failed. And ever since then, really, I think the Russians have adopted an attrition strategy. Um, They believe that their advantage is uh, one of numbers, that they're a much larger country, uh, much greater population. um, They have much greater military manufacturing capability, and they can simply wear the Ukrainians down over time so that they run out of men and munitions. And part of that is uh, a belief that the West will eventually lose patience, that uh, we can't sustain this support for the long haul. And I think Putin believes that that uh, approach is succeeding.
0: Well, one of the things that I found puzzling, though, on the U.S. and NATO side is why we have set these red lines and then say you can't have this missile, you can't have the tanks, you can't have the planes. And then months later, we agree to give them to Ukraine. And, of course, in the meantime, the Russians have built up formidable defenses and the Ukrainians are having a hard time. Punching those layers of defense. So it's almost as though the U.S. is ambivalent about not not wanting to win this war. How does it strike you?
2: Well, I I think that applies not only on the Western side but also on the Russian side. Uh, Neither country, neither the U.S. nor Russia, wants to get into a direct military conflict with each other because of the presence of these nuclear arsenals. It would uh, potentially escalate into a catastrophe. And I think Biden from the very start has said, you know, we want to to defend Ukraine. We want to prevent Ukraine from being overrun. Um, But we also don't want to get into World War III, as he calls it. And I think that's also true on the Russian side. And that's part of the reason why Putin has adopted this attrition strategy. Um, He realizes that if he, you know, tries to overrun Ukraine quickly uh, by using everything the Russians have in in their conventional arsenal, that that would raise the the chances that there would be a direct conflict with the United States. So both sides are trying to find a way forward here so that they can win without dangerous escalation. And, And the United States is feeling its way forward on this. We've been doing that since the beginning, sort of testing what can we get away with providing that won't result in an escalation into a direct conflict?
0: But which is the greater danger, Ukraine winning the war or Russia winning the war?
2: Well, unfortunately, I don't think either one is capable of winning the war outright. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean, the Ukrainians aren't going to be able to drive the Russian military off of all Ukrainian territory, including off of uh, Crimea, which the Russians annexed uh, in 2014. That's beyond their military capability. I think that's growing increasingly evident. But also, the Russians aren't capable of seizing all of Ukrainian territory. They already failed to take Kiev. I don't think they're going to be able to do that. Uh, Even if the Ukrainians were to collapse altogether, uh, I think the Russians recognize that uh, trying to govern all of Ukrainian territory would be beyond their capability, even if they were to conquer it. So there's going to have to be something less than an unconditional victory on either side.
0: And your prediction in your article is that if the Russians were to prevail, then their strategy, I mean, going back to 2014, the strategy seems to have been to have political control over Ukraine without military needing military control, and then Putin went for the military option that failed. But the compromise position for the Russians would be a a rump, a state that would be a failed state.
2: Well, that would be, I think, uh, their solution to what you might call the NATO problem. Uh, From the very beginning, the Russians have wanted to ensure that Ukraine is not going to be a member of NATO— or otherwise uh, and a military ally of the United States. So uh, if they can't win that kind of concession at the negotiating table, and so far we've not been willing to talk to them about that, then their, their plan B is to turn Ukraine into a, essentially a failed state, a, a state that is in such a, a dysfunctional condition that it can't be a military ally of anybody. Um, so that's where things are headed unless, uh, we are able to find a way to get to the negotiating table and strike some sort of compromise.
0: Well, let's talk then about what's happening on Capitol Hill, which has been pretty dramatic or depressing depending on <laughs> how you see it. Now, of course, the choice of a new speaker might well be the litmus test might well be cutting aid to Ukraine. But shortly after he lost his speakership, Kevin McCarthy held a press conference. And let's just play a clip of what he was saying
3: about Ukraine. Look, I support arming Ukraine. That doesn't mean sending them cash, but arming Ukraine. But I have been on the White House, even before they sent this supplemental, I said, you guys are doing it all wrong by just sending us a supplemental. And I think the president is failing here because he's not telling the American public... What is the mission? Now, I have a, We have a lot of members who are Navy SEALs who've been in theater and F-18 pilots, and they're frustrated. They want to support, but they don't want to support an ever-ending war. They want to see what's going on here. And I've really been on the White House. You've got to come down and talk to about it. but you should listen to them and the prospects. I'm really concerned, though, long term. What's happening around looks a lot like the 1930s. A lot of actions that Putin takes is very similar to Hitler. If you you are history buffs, you'll know Hitler served in the World War I army, right? He hated that his country collapsed, and they signed the Treaty of Versailles. And what did he do? He ran and created a new party and ran in democracy again and again and again until he won. And when he won, what did he do? He took the freedoms away, and then he rebuilt his military, and even though it went against the Treaty of Versailles, the world power said nothing. And then what did he do? He took part of Czechoslovakia, he took Austria, and then he told the entire world he's going to take the rest of it on a given day. So now the world power could not sit back, so in come Neville Chamberlain. But what had happened? Well, Hitler loved it because he was equal now to the world power but he saw weakness neville chamberlain made him sign a piece of paper and told us peace for our time and then he invaded poland the next year and world war ii began so
0: george i find it extraordinary that you have speaker mccarthy talking about putin as though he were hitler and i guess by extension president biden is chamber neville chamberlain i mean this is the same speaker who cut aid to Ukraine out of the continuing resolution uh, just to get 45 days more of an open government?
2: Well, you know, it's funny how many people use that Hitler uh, and Chamberlain analogy. Uh, Nobody wants to be called an appeaser in all of this, and and Biden, of course, has made the same sorts of allusions himself. Um, The the bottom line in all of this is that nobody thinks there should be some sort of compromise uh, with the Russians over this, and unfortunately, If we're not willing to do that, we're probably going to get an outcome in Ukraine that's going to be a disaster for everybody, including, uh, first and foremost, for the Ukrainians themselves. Um, But uh, the funny thing about uh, McCarthy was I think he was maneuvering to try to keep his speakership. Um, So he was under a lot of pressure from uh, so-called dissident uh, GOP congressmen, very much opposed to continuing to fund uh, Ukraine without some sort of exit plan tied to it. And I think they've been pushing on the White House to uh, make clear what the the end game for Ukraine actually looks like. Uh, And that's been something that the White House has not been willing to do. They're not willing to go beyond saying that we need to continue to fund Ukraine for as long as it takes without defining what it means in that formulation. So that's something that I think is going to have to be addressed because this uh, pressure on Capitol Hill uh, to um, not just fund Ukraine indefinitely, but to tie that funding to some sort of viable exit strategy for Ukraine is not going to go away. Um, And uh, whoever the next speaker is, if there is one, is going to have to deal with that pressure one way or another.
0: But. Is the situation going to get worse for Ukraine in the sense that at the moment you do have the tail wagging the dog of the Republican Party, the vast majority of Republicans and Democrats do want to continue funding Ukraine, but uh, a very small minority, both, I think, 21 or so in the House, and uh, you've got a handful of senators like Rand Paul and J.D. Vance. Could you fairly describe those people? as some have, as the Putin
1: caucus?
2: (laughs) No, I I think that would be an unfair characterization. Uh, I don't think any of them have any sympathies for Putin whatsoever. Uh, But they do believe that America's interests in this uh, do not lie in being in what you might call another forever war in Ukraine. Um, And they certainly are concerned about the implications of a long conflict uh, in Ukraine uh, for possible escalation uh, into a direct conflict with Russia. Those odds go up the longer the war goes on. Um, And they are certainly a minority on Capitol Hill. There's no question about that. But um, they're not necessarily a minority when you look at uh, national opinion in the United States. And uh, polls have been indicating that uh, support for unending uh, military and economic aid to Ukraine has been growing less popular in the United States. So um, it's an open question, really, to to ask, uh, is this minority on Capitol Hill actually reflective of a much growing and much more significant body of opinion in the United States as a whole?
0: And. If we're getting fatigue here in the United States, uh, according to the polls that you just mentioned, how is it uh, in Germany? Because, for example, Germany's got, I think, at least two to three million refugees from Ukraine, mostly women and children, who are unable to work but are being subsidized by the German taxpayer. And that, I think, is creating social unrest and social problems in Europe and other frontline countries that are also hosting refugees. If you go back to the war in Syria when Putin intervened, then shortly thereafter, the SACCIO, the Supreme Allied Command of Europe, accused Putin of weaponizing refugees and massive refugees flows went into Europe and that caused a lot of social distress and also led to the rise of uh, far-right governments or far-right parties. And you've got AFD in Germany uh, now calling for the Germans to cut funds altogether. And you've got FICO coming back in Slovakia. And, of course, you've got uh, Orbán in Hungary. So what's the picture there like? It doesn't look good for Ukraine.
2: Well, I think that's right. I think the trends in Europe are, are blowing in the direction of calling for an end to this war. And uh, in, in Germany, it's not just the presence of refugees from Ukraine that is driving uh, this increasing uh, unhappiness. Uh, also, Germany is is dealing with some fairly significant economic problems that are related to this war. The German economy was was really built on the foundation of cheap energy supplies from Russia. And those cheap energy supplies have gone away as a result of this war and German energy costs have increased quite significantly, which in turn has meant that uh, German manufacturing uh, has uh, been uh, affected and uh, the price, so they're less competitive in the world. All of this really is bringing the German uh, economy into recession, and that is compounding the social distresses that are resulting from these refugees. Um, and when you think that the German economy is really the the engine of the European economy uh, more broadly, that is a very significant development uh, that, that will, I think, and is starting to affect uh, European patients with this war.
0: But on the other side, on the Russian side, how much damage is are the sanctions doing to the Russian economy. Somehow or other they seem to be surviving. My understanding is that Putin is actually getting recruits uh, in spite of a lot of young Russians leaving the country. Apparently they're meeting their targets, uh, which is apparently not true in Ukraine. Uh, they're not meeting their recruitment targets. And as we said earlier, Putin's strategy is for a long war. So what incentive is there for Putin to negotiate if, indeed, as you point out, a negotiated settlement is absolutely vital here?
2: Well, um, he uh, he certainly has some incentives to negotiate. Uh, he could uh, potentially uh, find an arrangement with the West that would be stable, that would uh, potentially allow economic sanctions to be lifted would make uh, Russia less dependent as it has become on China. Um, those are things that other things being equal, I think Putin would find desirable, but he's not under great pressure right now to end this war. Things uh, have been going relatively well over time for the Russians. Um, I think the attrition strategy is starting to pay off. So, um, In order to get him to the negotiating table and and strike some sort of deal, uh, unfortunately, over time, uh, we're going to have to make more concessions, uh, make this more attractive than we would have had to earlier in the war. And the longer this war goes on, the the longer these trends continue, the less incentive he's going to have to compromise. So time's not on our side on this.
0: But isn't that an argument for why the United States and NATO should have supported Ukraine more so that they could have had some more military breakthrough, taken Crimea and had been a stronger bargaining position?
2: Well, uh, yeah, and there are certainly people that make that argument. Um, I'm skeptical of that uh, for a number of reasons, but but one of which is you, you just flood the Ukrainian military with a whole bunch of aid early on lots and lots of weapons that they're unfamiliar with, Uh, they've got to be trained on, they've got to maintain it, Uh, their ability to absorb and use that equipment uh, very quickly is quite limited. So, you know, you could in theory say, hey, if we had given them all this stuff earlier, they would have had a breakthrough, the war would have been short, they would have won. Well, what you're not taking into account is, A, number one, the Russians could have escalated in response to that. I think almost certainly would have. Um, number two, there are limits to how quickly the Ukrainians could have absorbed and used that kind of equipment uh over time. So um it, it on the surface it makes sense, but I think when you actually delve into that argument, it it wasn't really viable.
0: Well, George Beebe, I thank you for joining us. I appreciate uh, your insight. Thanks, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with George Beebe, who's the Director of Grand Strategy at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. He served in government for nearly 25 years, including as Director of Russia Analysis at the CIA and as a White House Advisor on Russian Matters for Vice President Dick Cheney. His latest book is The Russia Trap, How Our Shadow War with Russia Could Spiral into Nuclear Catastrophe. And he has an article at Responsible Statecraft, Will Ukraine's Efforts Go Bankrupt Gradually, Then Suddenly? We're going to take a brief station break and back assessing the blowback Armenia's leader faces after the ethnic cleansing of Nagorno-Karabakh by Azerbaijan.
3: Tonight, two great ships will pull back to their ports, depleted of
1: everything that shoots flames and reports. And in the morning, the shells will wash up on the shore and the mighty of earth will have no other recourse but to shiver and shake
0: and make sh- Welcome back, I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing available twenty four seven at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Shushan Karapetian, who is the Director of the University of Southern California's Institute of Armenian Studies, who previously taught Armenian studies at UCLA for 10 years, where she currently also serves as an Associate Director of the National Heritage Language Resource Center. Her research focuses on the Armenian experience, particularly in competing ideologies at the intersection of language and the construction of transnational identity. Welcome to Background Briefing, Shushan Karapetian.
4: Thank you, Ian.
0: Well, thanks for joining us. And, and is there a serious backlash now against Armenia's Prime Minister, Nikol Pashinyan, because of the ethnic cleansing that took place in the Bono Karabakh and the fact that he didn't mobilize, or he mobilized the army, but they didn't engage in another fight? Obviously... I think it was a calculation on his part that they just weren't ready uh, since the, the Azerbaijan military has been aided by Turkey and by Israel and it would have probably been futile. But give us an ex- a sense of the extent to which there is a blowback against this progressive new leader in Armenia.
4: It's a very tough situation and a cyclical one where it seems that Armenia is constantly stuck between a rock and a hard place. Of course, the Armenian population is frustrated and angry and disillusioned, but they are facing such harrowing decisions and responsibilities with the influx of now over 100,000 refugees displaced. Um, Armenians from um, Artsakh, Nagorno-Karabakh, they are concerned about Armenia's sovereignty and security. With the constant rhetoric coming out of Azerbaijan of, uh, you know, attacking Sunni or describing Armenia as Western Azerbaijan, they are also very strongly committed to democracy, to clean and fair elections, to Decision making power that is their own and not dictated by Russia or by foreign powers. So it's a, it's a very tough moment where yes, the population is upset. Yes, the population is angry. Uh, yes, they're frustrated, but they also do not want a puppet government placed by Russia.
0: Well, on Tuesday, the Armenian Parliament ratified the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court, which means now that if Putin visited Armenia, which he did, I think, in 2020, uh, he would be arrested.
4: It's, uh, you know, Pashinyan's government has definitely been pivoting to the West, to democratic values with moves like ratifying the Rome Statute, with... Um, military exercises with the U.S., with France now offering to sell weapons. Um, And some are concerned that there will be a heavy price to pay for these types of moves because Russia is still the major power. Russia still, or for a very long time, has viewed the Caucasus as its backyard. Now Russia is distracted by the war in Ukraine and possibly not possibly, obviously, was complicit and aware of the recent shelling of the ethnic cleansing of Armenia. So again, Armenia is making these pivots and these gestures, but the concern is that the West responds in calls, in concern, but not in action. And the, the very large and serious looming fear is Armenia's sovereignty.
0: Well, the French do appear to be stepping up, and their foreign minister, uh, I think, was visiting uh, Armenia on on Tuesday. Um, Mm -hmm. And, of course, there's a history of France coming to the rescue of Armenians in the genocide in 2015. So the ties are pretty strong. The U.S. had recent military maneuvers with the Armenian military, but there were only 85 Americans involved in this. So... Is there anything in the pipeline? Have anybody been prepared for this break with Russia, where Putin is anti-democratic, to put it mildly, and he's much right. more comfortable with Aliev, you know, the dynastic dictator in Azerbaijan, uh, who's also sitting on a lot of oil and is laundering a lot of Russian oil into the into the global market. Yes. So there's no question that the break between Armenia and and Russia is pretty profound. And the Armenians were furious with the Russians for not rescuing the people in the enclave and allowing food and medicine to go in. Uh, they were sitting idly by. So they've taken sides, the Russians, clearly. So uh, Armenia is on its own, isn't it?
4: Unfortunately, it is. And I think the frustration with the international community, like you indicated, um, After the 1915 genocide, the U.S. provided immense humanitarian aid, immense. But again, it was after the event. And, you know, the Armenian genocide seems so far away. We didn't think we would be using the word genocide in 2023. So when the alarm bells were rung months ago uh, by legal and human rights scholars by folks like the first chief prosecutor of the International Criminal Court, that starving people is an act of genocide. The international community stayed silent. I mean, the U.S. made concrete statements saying the U.S. will not tolerate violence. And yet we have been watching physical and psychological violence and the ethnic cleansing of an entire population, over 100,000 out of 120,000 people have left. Of course, Azerbaijan paints this as a voluntary exodus, and I just co-authored an op-ed for the LA Times that will be out today or tomorrow talking about Azerbaijan's disinformation campaign and Armenophobia, that is painting narratives of a voluntary, self-selected, self-elected departure from their ancestral homeland. But That's not the case. And we all know that. Everyone knows that. And we're watching. The fear is if the U.S. and the international community do not punish Azerbaijan, do not sanction Azerbaijan, that this will become the new norm, that authoritarian dictators can just make land grabs. They can ethnically cleanse indigenous people and they can get away with it. You know, is the U.S. and the international order okay living in an environment where authoritarian dictators can make land grabs and can ethnically cleanse historic territories. And and that's that's normal behavior.
0: Well, what is the U.S. position? I mean, they obviously uh, had the recent military exercises, albeit on a very small scale. Uh, Israel, which is a U.S. ally, supports Azerbaijan for reasons I don't understand. Can you uh, enlighten us on that?
4: The U.S. position is rhetoric that condemns ethnic cleansing, is rhetoric that condemns violence, and action that just watches at this point. The U.N. mission showed up in Artsakh when the entire population had already been cleansed. I mean, it, it 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 was a joke. Uh, one of the locals said, "It's a ghost town. Why have you come at this point?" You know, and of course, they found no acts of violence. Um, so, Israel's interest is, of course, to get closer to have eyes on Iran. Uh, mm. There's value there, uh, and all of Europe, of course, has now been meeting their gas and oil needs, they've replaced one authoritarian dictator for another. If it was Russia before, now they have to condemn Russia for its aggression in Ukraine, and so they've traded Russia for Azerbaijan.
0: But isn't Azerbaijan allowing Iranian equipment, military equipment, to to be shipped across its territory into Russia now that Russia and Iran are military allies?
4: So Iran's situation is... An interesting one because Iran has a hard line with border shifts and the Iran Armenian border is a very important one for both countries uh, and, 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 you know in a funny twist of events Armenia is in such a bad neighborhood that Iran's our kind of best neighbor at the moment
0: mm. so
4: Iran's decision-making will have a very very meaningful impact and it's very important for Armenia that Iran keep this hard line
0: but what about this other Azerbaijan uh, enclave in the southwest of Armenia, mm-hmm. uh, Nakhchivan?
4: Exclave, right. Azerbaijan has an exclave that is to the southwest of Armenia with which it does not have a corridor. And, and uh, one of Azerbaijan's main goals is to have a land corridor through Armenia that will connect Nakhijevan with Azerbaijan, that will also now provide Turkey access to, through Nakhijevan to Azerbaijan and to the rest of Central Asia. This is a major goal. And not only do they want the land corridor, they want the land corridor to be controlled and monitored by them. And, and this is a, a no-no for Armenia. And now there are talks about possibly this corridor going through Iran and not through Armenia. So this, this, is, this will become the next important issue.
0: And how's it going to play out, do you think? I mean, again...
4: That's a, it's, a, it's a very tough one. It's a very tough one. It, it depends on Russia's roles, and Russia at this point obviously seems to be pivoting towards Azerbaijan. It depends on how hard Iran will be on protecting uh, its borders. It depends on... Uh, Turkey and Turkey, of course, uh, Turkey and Azerbaijan, both are following this pan-Turkism, ideology of pan-Turkism, which is the kind of political, cultural, uh, linguistic unification of Turkic uh, peoples. Um, So it depends on a lot of the regional actors, and it depends on what the rest of the world will do. Will it continue watching silently, um, just shelling out rhetoric? and and letting Azerbaijan get away with impunity, or will will something meaningful happen?
0: So, Shazhan, what do you think, though, that the Armenian diaspora can do? I think it's fairly influential politically, and as we were saying earlier, the U.S. has sent some token support, but the country is vulnerable, clearly, and in a very rough neighborhood with few friends. The French seem to be stepping up How quickly could the U.S. get involved? I mean, Russia's distracted in Ukraine, and and to some extent so is the United States.
4: The the Armenian diaspora has been, uh, you know, continues to fundraise for humanitarian relief. Um, This is critical right now. We have a humanitarian catastrophe on our hands. We have over 100,000 people who have been on the brink of starvation who have spent harrowing days in fear, uh, abandoning everything they've known. And now they're in Armenia. These people need to be housed. These people need to be fed. They need to be provided with basic essentials. They need to be set up with employment. So humanitarian relief is essential. Uh, Samantha Powers with USAID was in Armenia a couple of days ago with some $10-11 of aid, which... Some found laughable. It's under $100 per refugee. Um, So definitely more aid uh, sanctioning Azerbaijan is very, very important. And the U.S. and others need to put a hard line on any possibility of any kind of obstruction or change into Armenia's territorial integrity and sovereignty. That is the most essential at this point.
0: Well, there have been substantial demonstrations against the the Azerbaijan embassies in Lebanon, for example. Is there any. in, In
4: Los Angeles, we've had diasporans closing down freeways, diasporans protesting all over. But just like the Armenians of Artsakh, the Armenians of Nagorno Karabakh feel invisible, the diaspora also feels invisible and feels impotent. They, just this constant feeling of kind of screaming into a void and feeling invisible.
0: So what are you hearing from the Biden White House then?
4: We're hearing lots of comforting and aggressive talk about how the U.S. will not tolerate violence, how the U.S. will not tolerate ethnic cleansing, and yet it happened in a matter of days. And Samantha Powers showed up only after Artsakh is now absent of Armenians. So the talk and the walk don't align.
0: Well, just in closing then, what's your sense of what it will take to get the U.S. focused on this situation where Armenia desperately needs protection?
4: I think the U.S. needs to realize that this isn't just the scenario of some ethnic enclave that no one has heard of. I think the U.S. needs to realize that decisions that will be made about the situation now will impact geopolitical dynamics that are much larger than Nagorno-Karabakh, that if the U.S. tolerates Azerbaijan's authoritarianism, it is going to have to deal with much worse consequences that will be significant far beyond Karabakh.
0: Well, Shushan Karapetian, I thank you very much for joining us here today.
4: Thank you so much for having me.
0: And again, I've been speaking with Shushan Karapetian, who's the director of the University of Southern California's Institute of Armenian Studies, who previously taught Armenian Studies at UCLA for 10 years, where she currently also serves as an associate director of the National Heritage Language Resource Center. Her research focuses on the Armenian experience, particularly in, on competing ideologies at the intersection of language and the construction of transnational identity. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews, searchable by topic, and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media, and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again on Sunday with another background briefing. Bye for now. The guy that next door in
3: 305 i